Well, today we're continuing our sermon series on the image of God, wherein we're taking this doctrinal idea that God made every human being in his image, and then we're applying it to some of kind of the, the contentious issues of our day. And today, uh, we, we've talked about abortion already, we've talked about worship, and today we're going to begin the conversation on gender. So as it turns out, this topic is going to take us two weeks uh, to digest. I just couldn't fit it into one. And so today, we're simply going to look at the relationship between this doctrine of the image of God and uh, gender. How do the two relate? And then next week, we're going to chew on how we as a congregation can engage our culture more redemptively on this issue. So let's jump in on the doctrinal side of the conversation, which is how does gender relate to the image of God? If you like to take notes, there's a handout that you Uh, got on your way in. So how does gender relate to the image of God? First of all, men and women both share in the image of God. Men and women both share in the image of God. That might seem obvious, but in case it wasn't, I wanted to be clear. And how do we know that both men and women are made in the image of God? Well, we saw in verse Genesis chapter 1, we've read it every time in this series. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, if I wanted to biblically justify misogyny or diminishment of women, I could construe it in this way. Well, it says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So the image talk is all tied to the masculine pronoun, but then it just to the end says male and female, he created them. See, women don't have the image of God in the way that men have the image of God. Well, any serious interpreter of Genesis 1 would say, I was out to lunch, that that was a poor interpretation of the text. But let's bring in the apostle Paul for backup to help us see that both men and women share equally in the image of God. So look again at 1 Corinthians 11. Y'all probably heard all these scriptures being read and they're like, thought, man, he's uh, going for divorce and for head coverings and for all this stuff too in one Sunday. Uh, yes, actually. So 1 Corinthians 11 verse 4 says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, not his physical head, but Christ, who is his head. It said that earlier. So every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, her husband, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. This is what we're focusing in on, verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, there are no doubt a a lot of questions raised uh, by this text. Um, I grew up in a church. I might talk about this on next week. I grew up in a church where women were not allowed to cut their hair short. Women were not allowed to speak in a a business meeting, like Amy reading a scripture that would never have been allowed. And so um, I'm aware of a lot of different ways to interpret these texts. And hopefully we'll get to most of the questions as we cover these two weeks. But here's what I want to point out right now. Notice precisely how Paul words verse 7. He says, a man ought not to cover his head since he is what? What is man? 
That's right. He is the image and glory of God. But what is woman? So you'll notice that it doesn't say woman is the image of man. It says that woman is the glory of man. There's a point uh, that he's making here. Why is she not in the image of man? Because she too is made in the image of God, right? Why does that matter? Who cares whether men and women share equally in the image of God? We've already laid the foundation for this in the first four weeks of our series. It's because the image of God in a human being is the source of human dignity. What is it that gives each human being value and worth? What makes them worthy of honor and protection and dignity? It's the fact that they are modeled after God. That every human being is not patterned after anything but him. So in cosmic terms and in ethical terms, there is no difference between a woman and a man. In terms of their value to God, what their value should be to us, with what dignity and honor we should treat them, men and women are on an equal playing field. Now, does that mean there's nothing different between men and women? Well, of course not. And this is kind of what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians. God made men and women different so that they would bear his image differently. So we have the image of God equally, men and women, but the way that we live it out and the way that we express it is different for men and for women. So in Genesis, God designs, he invents, he creates people. And God could have made us any way that he wanted. But he decided to make some people male and some people female. But how are these males and females supposed to be the same? And how are they supposed to be different? And in this topsy-turvy postmodern world, who can know the difference between a man and a woman? Well, if you look at the Bible, Jesus seemed to know the difference between a man and a woman. And Paul seemed to know the difference between a man and a woman. And even though we may not be able to tell the difference between a man and a woman, they could. So where did they get this erudite information whereby they could tell the difference and the similarities between a man and a woman? Well, to establish gender and marital uh, norms, Jesus and Paul always look to the garden pre-fall. So when Jesus talks about gender and marriage, when Paul talks about gender and marriage, inevitably they go back to the Garden of Eden before sin had ever had any impact on us. So what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? We don't look to John Wayne. We don't look to Claire Huxtable. We go to Adam and Eve. Because that's what Jesus did, and that's what Paul did. So Jesus, in the text that Amy read for us, is approached by the Pharisees. And they ask a question about marriage and divorce. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to justify men getting a divorce for any and every reason. There were actually laws on the books in the first century that said if a woman burned your dinner, you could divorce her. So they were looking for for any reason for a man to leave his wife. So they came to Jesus and said, so, is that cool? We can get divorced for any and every reason? Jesus, you have to imagine him just kind of shaking his head. And he says, guys, you want to understand how marriage works? You understand how a man should treat a woman, how a woman should treat a man? You're not going back far enough. Yes, Moses gave you a law about that. But you need to go back further beyond Levitical law. You need to go to the garden. And what do we find there? When Adam married his wife, God joined them together. And then Jesus authoritatively adds, you've heard this in weddings your whole life. It's the words of Jesus. 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So when people ask Jesus about the norms for marriage, where does he go? He goes back to the garden before sin. Paul works the same way. So the church in Corinth, I, I really want to do a sermon series on the church, on the first and second Corinthians sometimes because they are just a disaster. And uh, it's just like us. The, the, the church in Corinth and Corinth itself was a lot like the church in 2022 in the United States. So the church in Corinth had all kinds of gender confusion and sexual dysfunction because they lived in Corinth. One of the major religious sites in Corinth was a temple to a sex goddess, complete with prostitution. That was what it meant uh, to go to worship as you went and participated in these lascivious activities, to use a good King James word. It was a godless, sensual society from which these people were being saved. They'd never heard anything about Yahweh, God of the Old Testament. They'd never heard anything about Jesus, and they're coming out of this kind of a culture. So there's a lot of confusion. And so Paul is trying to help them sort all this out. How does he do it? He does the same thing Jesus does. He goes back to the garden and even to the doctrine of the image of God. So look again at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 7 through 12. He says, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. He's back in Genesis 2. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Again, I'm going to get into the weeds on this text in a minute. I'm not going to talk about the angel thing. we we'll talk about that later. What we need to see now is that Paul answers questions about gender and sexuality by going to the garden and the image of God. So I'm trying to take my cues from Jesus and from Paul. If you don't like my views on gender... I invite you to take it up with the two of them. So, it's not that Adam and his wife related one way before sin came into the world, but now that we're Christians, we have freedom to relate however we want. No, Jesus and Paul are telling us they're the standard. They're the ideal. You want to understand how men and women are supposed to relate to each other in this world, we look to the garden. Now, sin is real, and sin has affected gender, and gender relations, and that's all next week. Next week, we're talking about the impact of sin on our relationships and on gender. But we want to talk about those pre-sin ideals or standards to which God calls followers of Christ. So what can we learn about gender from our first parents? God, first of all, God created men to fill roles of authority in the home and in the church. God created men to, to fill roles of authority in the home and in the church. Now, does that mean that men are, you know, just better leaders and better communicators and smarter and just better at everything? No, not even close. This isn't even saying that all men have some certain, uh, some certain set of qualities or giftings that women don't. I've met plenty of men who can't lead their way out of a wet paper bag. And I know plenty of women who are fantastic leaders. This is not about leadership. 
It's about authority. And they're two different things. Stated another way, God created men and said, okay, guys, the buck stops with you. You're responsible for the things that happen in your home and in the church. That doesn't mean that women don't have input on finances or child rearing or even the direction and future of the church. It means that when the ax comes down, it's going to come down on the men if the job doesn't get done in God's way. That hits a little bit differently, doesn't it? Now, where do we see that in Genesis? And there's no church in Genesis, let alone really a family. They're just kind of getting started. Let's think about it. Who did God create first? Adam, that's right, that's right. Uh, With whom does God primarily speak in Genesis? Adam, that's right. To whom does he give the command to not eat from the tree of knowledge? The answer is going to be Adam to all of them, so you can just go ahead and say it. Um, Who names the woman? Thank you, Isaac. Y'all are really, are y'all just nervous about gender? Come on, y'all. Like, relax. It's all right. Who is the person that when they sin, God showed up and talked to him? It's Adam. In the economy of the garden, Adam was the mediator between God and his wife. He filled the role in that home and in that place of prophet, priest, and king. And how good was Adam at that job? Damnably bad. He screwed it up. He dropped the ball. And and God came for him. The good news is, Jesus came. And where Adam failed as prophet, priest, and king, Jesus did not fail. And that's what Paul means when he says that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. There's a spiritual authority in the home that is granted to a husband that is analogous to the authority of God the Father to God the Son. So this is not talking about value, right? It's not saying that men are better than women or vice versa. No, being a woman, having a covenantal head doesn't make you less than. That's just how God designed it. That's how Jesus relates to the Father, and there's no equality difference between God the Father and God the Son. And if anybody should be uncomfortable with this idea of men being the authority in the home and the church, it's the guys. Because when sin entered the garden, God came for us. Husbands, fathers, men. We are responsible for the things that happen in our home. Elders, you are responsible for the things that happen in this church. And when our homes and our churches fall short of the kingdom of God, that's something that we men will answer to God for. So men, we must be leading the way in loving our wives and children in wooing them to know Christ, in reading the scriptures and teaching the scriptures to them. We must be leading the way in praying with our wives and our children, in bringing them to church. We fill this Adamic role of prophet, priest, and king under the headship of Christ. So brothers, are you seeking Christ? Is he on the throne of your life? And are you daily going to your knees before him and saying, Jesus, show me the way. Show me how to lead as you would lead. That's the role granted to men. So what's the role granted to women? 
den in the garden. God created women to walk alongside men, following him in a shared pursuit of image-bearing, that dominion and glory we've been talking about. So kids, let me ask you a question. What, let me see those kids' eyes. Let me see those kids' eyes. Raise your hand if you know what body part God took out of Adam to make the man. All right, Joe knows. JJ knows. All right. On, on three, I want you all say it out loud together. Ready? One, two, three. That's right. It was a rib. Have you ever wondered why God took a rib? I mean, why not make Eve from, I don't know, his foot or his ear or something else? Why did he take his rib? I think there's, there's a reason here. I want to teach you kids and grown-ups the lesson of the rib. It's not the lesson of the McRib. That's a lesson I see doomed to repeat again every winter. This is the lesson of the rib. Do y'all not eat a McRib? Y'all are wiser than I am. Here's the first lesson of the rib. First, womankind completes what is lacking in mankind. Now, you already knew that from experience. <laughs> if you hadn't learned that already, maybe you learned it from Jerry Maguire back in 1996. Regardless, woman completes man. She's the missing piece. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God looked at Adam and said, oh, This isn't good. <laughs> it is not good. For man to be alone, I will make a helper fit for him. That's the first time in, in history, in human history, that God said something was not good. And it's before sin ever entered the scene. Man is incomplete without woman. And when God takes Adam's rib away, that demonstrably shows that he is incomplete without her. She's the missing piece. So also in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as, man was made, uh, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So let's put it together, folks. Without women, there ain't no more children. And with no more children, there ain't no more men. Likewise, without woman... Man cannot be what he is supposed to be. Man cannot fulfill his prophetic, priestly, and kingly work without woman doing the same with him. And that leads to the second part of this rib lesson. That mankind cannot complete his kingdom calling without leaning on womankind. And I'm not even talking about marriage. Plenty of single people fulfill their kingdom calling. But it still has to be done in conjunction with others. And men were never meant to do it alone. So the work of the kingdom, the work of the church, that's not man's work. We need women alongside us in our pursuit of the earth made like heaven. We need women alongside us as we seek to live and love like Jesus. Those dominion and glory things we've been talking about. So God took his, Adam's rib to be a helper for him. I believe that's intentionally evocative. Where does woman belong? Right here, right up against the guy, so that he can lean on her. You've heard the joke that behind every successful man is a good woman. There's truth to that, but not just in marriage. It's in the church. The most functional churches are the ones with women active in leadership and ministry. And I'll dig more into the, the ins and outs of that next week. But for now, suffice it to say that mankind as a whole cannot complete his kingdom calling without leaning on womankind. That's the second part of the rib 
lesson. But here's the third and definitely most romantic aspect of the rib lesson, which is this. Woman completes what is lacking in creation. Indeed, she is its crown jewel. So call me a a, a romantic, but I think it's significant that in Genesis 1, creation begins with darkness and chaos and dust flying all around in these primordial waters, and God starts to bring order to chaos, light to darkness, beauty to mess, something from nothing. And the further he gets along in the process, it becomes more refined, more beautiful, more God-reflecting, until finally he makes images, male and female. He makes them. And as we saw in 1 Corinthians 11, man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Woman really is the better half of humanity. The more refined, the more glorious. Indeed, womankind is the crown jewel of creation. It just wasn't right without her. She's the most majestic creature ever made by God. You ever wonder why men, when they fall in love, they say crazy stuff like, I just worship the ground that she walks on? Why do otherwise just normal, dull-headed men try their hand at poetry and song? There's something worshipful that comes up in the heart of a man when he is stricken by the beauty of a woman. Why is that? Because she's the pinnacle of creation and she's an image of God. What do images of God do? They call us to want to worship. When we see something glorious in a human being, it makes us want to worship God. Now, for a lot of men, the wife becomes an idol, not seeing that she's a reflector of the beauty and glory of God, but it makes a lot of sense that that could happen because she is the completion of creation. No wonder God tells men in Ephesians to love women as Christ loved the church. No wonder male headship is supposed to look like servanthood. Woman is treasured in the eyes of God. She is his great masterpiece. So let's back up from the lesson of the rib for a second, and let's try to distill all of this in a statement. God commands us to reflect gender distinctions, uh, gender differences in how we live and worship. That really is, at a 20,000-foot view, the point that Paul's making in 1 Corinthians 11. In the way that we live and in the way that we worship, we should maintain clear gender differences. That's what's really at stake here. So when Paul says men shouldn't have long hair, why is that? Because long hair in the first century was a cultural symbol of homosexuality. They would grow their hair out long because it would be seen as effeminate and attractive. So God says, no, not my people. In the way that they live their life, they need to... Act like Adam and Eve. Look to Adam and Eve for your norms of gender and sexuality. So men should look and act and dress like men. And women should look and act and dress like women. Now you could ask the question, well, doesn't that change from culture to culture? Yeah, it does. And we can talk about that and debate all the ins and outs of that. But in the way that we live, are we embracing the gender that God has given us? Or are we trying to inhabit some asexual middle ground, or the other gender altogether. God just doesn't allow that for his people in the way that they live from Monday through Saturday. But if that's the case Monday through Saturday, if God wants us to embrace the gender he has made us and to live it out, well, why would we expect things to be different then at church? 
No, the same authoritative distinction should be made here in how we relate to each other. And Paul describes that uh, not only with the whole head coverings in worship, but later in 1 Corinthians 14, where he talks about women keeping silent. And we are going to look at that one too real quick. How do we address this whole women in silence thing? Because in 1 Corinthians 11, he says when women pray and prophesy, they're to have their heads covered. That doesn't sound like silence to me. But then in chapter 14, he says women are to be silent. And this is in the same book. So how do we sort this out? Are women supposed to be silent or are they not supposed to be silent? Turn to 1 Corinthians 14. Y'all crack me up. I preached on abortion two weeks ago. I was like sweating bullets. I was a nervous wreck about that. And y'all didn't, oh, whatever, no problem. Today, y'all are just like quiet as a church mouse. Shoot. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 through 35. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Yeah, we're going to talk about tongues too. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue... Let there only be two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church, and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints... The women should keep silent in the churches. for They're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. So which is it, Paul? Can they pray or prophesy? Or are they supposed to be so quiet they can't even ask a question? Well, there are a couple different ways to kind of parse this thing out. I'm going to give you the interpretation that makes the most sense to me. So... These Christian women in Corinth are hearing the powerful truth of the gospel. That in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. This good news that in Christ, we all have equal worth and dignity and value and inclusion in God's family. But that idea of radical equality in Christ resonated with sort of a proto-feminism that was growing in the first century. There was a movement among Corinthian women where they began to dress differently, like men. They began to act aggressive sexually and provocatively. And on the inverse, there were men who were acting more effeminate. And we were already talking about that a second ago. So that was happening in the culture. And so people hear this good news. We're all equal in Christ. So they came into the church and they were continuing in that way, in the way that they worshipped. So, worship would happen in homes. It wasn't in a space like this. And one of two things I think was happening. So, either women were angling to be the lead, churches, uh, lead teachers in the community, which Paul won't allow for in other parts of, this, of the scriptures. He reserves that role for men. Or, and I think this is more likely, the women were putting themselves in a position of discipleship under men who weren't their husbands. Maybe both of these things were happening, but that second option is what I really think is being described here. Let's look at it again in verse 35. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. So let's think about it this way. Let's imagine we're not meeting here. We're meeting in, in somebody's home, okay? 
And uh, let's imagine that, that Leslie Roberts, you're right here in the front so you get picked on. Let's imagine that, that Leslie Roberts has some questions about the faith as a new Christian. And so every Sunday our little house church is meeting, and she keeps pulling Todd Fernandez aside. He's an elder of the church, and he's got a lot of questions, or she's got a lot of questions. So she starts asking Todd for some input on things. And maybe Leslie and Todd even start meeting outside of worship uh, one-on-one. Okay. Then let's imagine that one night our little house church meets, and everybody's eating together, when suddenly Leslie's husband, Steve, he says something about God. You know, I was reading the Bible the other day, and I had this insight. And Leslie, in front of the gathered body, cuts him off and says, actually, Steve, that's wrong. You see, I've been uh, meeting with Todd, and, and Todd's view is, is better. In fact, let me, te- let me tell you what God is like. And then Leslie, in front of her husband, starts doing this. How would that make you feel as someone else sitting at the table? Pretty awkward. <laughs> She's just thrown her husband under the bus for this other guy's views. And you know they've been meeting during the week. It's just a little bit weird. It feels kind of weird and icky all around. So Paul says that kind of nonsense can't be happening because what's happening? She is shaming her husband and putting herself forward and promoting this. It's just weird. And how does that apply to us, though? Well, I think where it meets us in the 21st century is that women need to be mindful of how they talk about their husbands in front of others. There's sort of kind of this uh, everyone, everybody loves Raymond culture where it's funny and socially acceptable for women to talk bad about their husbands behind their backs or even in front of their husbands. And it's not okay. It's hurtful and disrespectful to her head. So back in Corinth, what is the ideal situation? What should be happening? Well, Steve and Leslie alongside each other could be discipled by Todd. Or maybe Steve is discipled by Todd, and Leslie is discipled by a woman in the church. And then the two of them come back together and sharpen one another in the context of intimacy and mutual honor and care. This relationship is supposed to be one of reciprocity, of mutual respect, of mutual honor. God cares how we embody our gender, not only on Monday through Saturday, but also on Sunday when we gather together. So we treat each other with respect and dignity. So I don't believe it's saying women can't ask a question in a business meeting. I don't think it's saying that women can't be a member of a committee or a board of the church. I don't even think it's saying that a woman can't meet with a pastor or an elder. It's just saying let's remember how and why God created us. Husbands are the heads of wives. Men are called to be the authoritative heads of the church. But they are crippled and not good without godly women going with them. So let's not embrace the culture's erasure of gender differences. Be men and women. Be mindful of each other. Honor each other. Let's cooperate together in this shared work. Now, that may not feel satisfactory to you because I haven't talked about how sin has wrecked that ideal I haven't talked about how the gospel restores the relationships between men and women. And I certainly haven't dived into the morass of gender confusion in our culture. And that's okay because we're out of time. And because simplicity is something I think we need to regain in this department. But the simplicity that we're looking for is not imposing a rigorous model of masculinity or femininity that's ripped from the pages of American culture. Men. John Wayne is not our model. Christ is the one who shows us what biblical masculinity looks like. 
And you know what biblical masculinity looks like? Sometimes it looks like flipping tables in church. Sometimes it looks like taking little children and praying for them. Usually biblical masculinity looks like dying on a cross. That's biblical masculinity. So also women, it's not Claire Huxtable or June Cleaver who shows us what biblical femininity looks like. We actually see the best model of femininity in Christ who submitted to the Father, in the church who submits to Christ, and yes, to Mary, the mother of Jesus. But we can find other good biblical examples along the way too. Sometimes biblical femininity looks like driving a tent peg through the temple of Sisera. Sometimes biblical femininity looks like Priscilla, whose role in the Ephesian church plant was so significant, she always gets named before her husband. But usually, biblical femininity also looks like dying on a cross. To be an image bearer is to walk in the way of Jesus, after all. So the goal here is to go to Scripture for our views of gender, and in truth, to go back to the garden, because there we find God's ideals and universals for men and women. Let's pray. Father, we believe a strange thing in this church, that you made us and we are not our own. So God, teach us how to live faithfully as followers of Christ in a world that doesn't know that truth, that doesn't believe that. Help us, Lord, to know what it looks like to be faithful to Christ as men and as women and help us to discern the truth from a lie. God, I pray especially for our children that you would give them a deep trust of you and of your scriptures because they will face these challenges even more than their parents and grandparents did. So, Father, give them a solid grounding in your scriptures that they may live as becomes men and women of God. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.